So if you have a smartphone, any of you own a smartphone, there's this great app called the Bible app. Go figure. And so we're not going to have scripture up here this morning. We have a few Bibles laid about, and you can come grab one. It's not going to distract me if you want to get up and grab one yourself. And if you're like, I don't know where that is, there's a beautiful gift given for folks who came to faith later in life like me called the Table of Content. And you can go look where it is. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10 this morning. We've been in a series called The Gospel in the Home. And we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about how God created man and woman in his image he created God, uh, God created man and woman in his image to reflect who he is to the world around them. He created God, man, and woman to come together in marriage unity, that through that covenant together that there would be new life given and that would emulate him, one man, one woman coming together in order of what the creator has set before them to do specific intimate things so that they are then able to create life just like their creator. And so the purpose of Marriage and family goes way beyond just our comfort and happiness. It goes way beyond just our need to belong. It goes towards the idea that because we were created to glorify, that means to reflect God, that God has given us a way to come together in covenant that we might reflect him to the world around us. We laid that foundation at the first sermon series, the next, or the first sermon, the, the next sermon we talked about how... Um, that, that, well, let's just be honest. I called the men out, didn't I? I cast vision from the scripture of what biblical manhood looks like, especially pertaining to how and who God has called us to be as redeemed men in Christ and the way that we love and lead our homes. And then we talked about what it looks like to be a family on mission, and then we kicked off a two-week series um, in this series on parenting, talking about the importance of having a biblical ideal and understanding of what parenting is and intended to do way beyond just uh, raising children who are well-behaved and who are not broke. Those are good things, but those are not ultimate things. But ultimately, the aim of parenting is to raise children up in the way that he or she should go, to give them opportunity to know and to love Jesus Christ, and then to set them free to make disciples for their lives. And so the final sermon of this series, I'm going to be teaching from Mark chapter 10. For those of you who are linear, you're going to know this is a little bit out of order from where we've been in Mark. We've, we're halfway through Mark chapter 9. We're going to jump to Mark chapter 10 because Jesus is teaching on divorce. And I want to preface this sermon by saying, if you have been divorced, I am not here to beat on you, to judge you, to shame you. That's not the point. The point this morning is to cast a grand vision on the reality of the seriousness of the covenant of marriage. Because I think it's very easy for us to make marriage more about our convenience, our happiness, our romance, than it is about God's glory. But I do sense that there's a need for warning that people take for granted their marriage covenant and promise. They take for granted their spouse. They take for granted the aim and goal of the point of marriage and the point of raising children at the expense of their marriage. That by the time they begin to realize that things have been out of control, the marriage is all but dead. And so please know I'm coming with a posture and a heart, not of judgment one ultimately of grace. And grace is a gift we do not deserve. God gave his only son, who was perfect, to cover our imperfections, to carry us when we are weak, to heal us when we're broken, 
to restore our joy when we feel we will never have it again. So please know that's my posture this morning as we talk about this issue. It is important, and there is a lot at stake in our marriage and in our homes. There's a lot at stake, namely the glory of God. And here's what I mean. The glory of God is revealing all of who God is, the nature and person of God, and God made himself known through his son Jesus. In Genesis, we see that God created man and woman in Genesis 2, and he created them to one day the, the, the man shall leave his father and mother and become one with his wife. We see Jesus teaching on that again, which we'll see today, that the two shall become one. We see the Apostle Paul affirming that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. I began this series talking from Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, when he's talking about the beauty of marriage and the synergy between that relationship when man and woman are leaning into their created and redeemed design in view of the gospel, the beauty that it brings, the reflection of God's glory it brings in the home, in front of the children, into the neighbors, into the family and friends. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, and for you note takers, I'm happy to email my exact notes to you because I know you're completely disoriented because there's no screen available, okay? So I will, I will send you it, and I promise it's pretty linear. So I know we're, we're riding without training wheels this morning, aren't we? Just wanted to give you a heads up, I understand. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, therefore, in view of this synergistic beauty of man and woman married before God, living in this mutual submission to God and this loving affection of the husband to the wife and the, the following of the man's leadership in the home by the woman, this synergy that happens, this beauty reveals Christ, and that's what Paul says here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In all of Scripture, there's no other covenant that better represents God's covenant with his people than marriage. And co the word covenant is like a serious promise. The word covenant is always in the Bible associated with death to life. Even in the very first covenant, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God in the garden, the very next thing we see is God killing animals through their death to bring grace and covering over the nakedness of Adam and Eve. There's always been blood in the covenant. Covenant is for life. The importance of covenant is something that we've greatly degraded in our uh, culture today. My main point, and if you're a note taker, I'll say it twice, and I'll repeat it later, that God's design for marriage is a lifelong covenant that reflects his gospel in the home, in the church, the community, and to the world. God's design for marriage is a lifelong covenant that reflects his gospel in the home, the church, the community, into the world. The gospel is God's good news from Genesis 1 to Revelation, the end of Revelation. God's promise that although he created us and we rebelled, that God has sent his son Jesus to live, die, and rise again and will come again to keep his promise. God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. God's design for marriage is a lifelong covenant and that reflects his gospel in the home, the church, the community, and to the world. 
I had the joy of marrying my high school sweetheart, Steph. She is literally a foot shorter than I am, but much stronger in many ways. She has a quick wit. She gets very articulate and focused and linear when she cares loudly, angry. She is fiercely loyal, deeply compassionate and loving in her own way. We got married, I was 22, she was 20 years old. I'm the type of person that if something is far off, I don't really experience it until later. So I'd be like, yeah, that's fine, no problem. I'll take 18 hours and work a full-time job and do all this different stuff. What's the big deal? I'm not thinking holistically on the real consequence of the details of what that entails. And so until I get towards something and I realize I made a, a ginormous, overwhelming mistake at times, I don't experience it. My wife, though, is a planner. Like, she, she can experience, and she'll go worst-case scenario immediately. What if this? 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 And she, list. When we did the, the training with the intentional churches, we did this assessment of how we are. Um, intentional churches is a group that comes and helps growing churches be strategic in how we go about fulfilling our vision and mission. And we did these assessments of personality and how we're wired, and some lend themselves more towards strategy, and other people lend themselves more towards operations. Um, on scale of 1 to 10, none is bad or none is good, but those on the opposite end of the spectrum have a tendency to judge each other or actually feel insecure like myself. And so, you know, we've got Pastor Brent, who's like the middle 6.0, right? And we had Russell Binky, who was a 6.8. And then we had Gatlin, who's a 4-something. And then everybody else was a 3. They don't like lots of changes. They don't like variables. They don't like ambiguity. They want to take very small, steady, uh, calculated steps. On the, on the other side, you have people that love variables. They love ambiguity. They are fine with it. Um, they, they, uh, they want change. They want to grow by quantum leaps. They want to move things forward. You might want to guess where I was. Why are you laughing? 8.8. The only thing that drew me back was I'm a 7 on ambiguity. I like to have some clarity. Just a general idea. And the beautiful thing that we saw is that we need each other. And so what once irritated Stephanie deeply about me, she now appreciates, and the same is true for me to her. But when she was 20 and I was 22, and we were living in a one-bedroom, 700-square-foot apartment, where even in your mat and you went to your own quarters on the opposite of the apartment, you could still hear each other breathe. And when things got really serious, you go out to the five-by-seven-foot Balcony, you know what I'm talking about. But I remember the day we got married. I was sitting there, I was like, I, what, oh my gosh, forever. And I wanted to marry her, I knew I wanted to marry her from the time I was 18 years old. But I was terrified of what it actually meant. Her, on the other hand, who's usually like, she'll go code red super early, which is great for our marriage. So like if our marriage has dropped down to like a seven, we're having a very serious conversation. Right? Most of us are like, hey, we're above five. We're killing it with kids, right? My wife's like seven, like, hey, things are off. We need to talk. But on that day, she says, she'll tell you the story. She says she was as calm as could be, and she was 20 years old, and she had done all the assessment, and she said, I don't know what I'm doing. But God, you do. Today I'm making a covenant with God 
and with this boy that can shave. We began with a God-centered focus that the covenant was not just between two individuals, two sinners making agreement. How do you think that goes? That's why Christian marriage is a unique marriage of something that God does by bringing two of his children together who are, yes, broken, but redeemed in Christ and weaves them together with himself in the center to hold when the other parts are fraying out. It's a covenant where God has made promises that he will keep, that where Jesus does the heavy lifting. And so in view of that, when we understand that God's design for marriage is a lifelong covenant that reflects his gospel in the home, the church, and the community, and to the world, we need to understand that every marriage has hard times. Every couple struggles with sin. Every couple at times questions Can we make it? And by the time that they start getting honest about that, they're obviously, they're usually way down the line. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Because I, along with the leadership here, desire to make that less common. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. Now, understand as he's leaving Galilee heading for the last time towards Jerusalem. We pick up with him in Mark 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus gets a crowd, he teaches. Now, remember, a lot of these crowds are showing up because they want to be healed, they want to be fed, they want to be uh, lose their demon, they might want to be resurrected, depending on what's on the menu for the day, what they want. Yet they come to him. He doesn't give them necessarily immediately what they want. He gives them what they need, and he brings his truth. And Pharisees, these religious leaders who had very vast knowledge of the Scriptures, they cared more about being right than being helpful. They were always trying to trap Jesus in what was true and right and everything else. They came, and they questioned him. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful? And they're talking about not not the Roman Empire law, but the Jewish uh, Old Testament law, God's law. And at the time, the current Testament law. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered answered them in a very popular rabbinic way. What did Moses command you? Push them back to the word of God. And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And we'll continue on in a second, but... You notice how our culture has shifted. Our culture has gone away from creator, therefore has creator rights and gets to bring definition, and goes to whatever we feel is right or true or whatever fits in our context or pleasure, that is true, and then we'll try to make it work with God. I'm guilty of it. Anyone else ever struggle with that, trying to force your will into God's? Anybody? I see some quiet nods. Let me, let, me, let me free you. Yes, we're all guilty of doing that. We're all guilty of doing that. Beginning to create a God in our own image who looks like us and votes like us and 
and, and values what we value in our marriage, and all of a sudden he's always saying yes, and we're never offended by him. Since God made man and woman, he has ownership rights. Whether they acknowledge him or not doesn't make him any more or less God. He is God. And therefore, he created them. He has definition, he has defining rights of how that should be. And because he has rights to define how that should be, he also has rights to discuss the reasons for it to come apart. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so the disciples, being as sharp as they normally are, don't quite get it, and they have to question Jesus again. Verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we have to first note this, that the law of Moses back in Deuteronomy 24, the law of Moses gave permission for divorce, but not a commandment to divorce. He, gave, he said there were permissible times to divorce, but it wasn't a given commandment. He did so because he intended man and woman to be together forever for life, as was formed in the Garden of Eden, but because of sin, sin entering in, there were times where there may need to be a provision for separation. God intends for marriage to be a man and a woman for life. Why? Because man and woman are created in God's image, and together they become one, and then they're able to multiply and create life. It's life-giving. It's life-forming. And while that doesn't always come to fruition, it is his created intent before sin broke it apart. So I want to talk about four primary things and then just give you some things to chew on as we end this series today. We must all be on guard against hardening our, of our hearts. Number one, we must all be on guard against the hardening of our hearts. Now, what hardens our heart? Ultimately, the hardness of heart is a result of unbelief of God. When we're not believing what God says is true, we begin to distance ourselves from the truth. Martin Luther put it this way, sin is nothing more than unbelief in the innermost being. And so when we act contrary to God's law and rule, we are actually going against faith. And so the provision for hardness of heart was because of sin, there are things that are covenant breaking that may result in this separation. But you can see in Malachi 6 that the word of God says that God hates divorce. Notice it doesn't say God hates those who are divorced. It says God hates divorce. Why? Because it is the breaking apart of something that he has done in result of who he is and what he's shown to the world to be of himself. The hardening of heart isn't like, I think this morning I want to have a hardened heart. A hardness of heart is not only from the people who, and, and you have to understand the context here, he's not just saying that people who get divorced are the ones with hard hearts. The hard hearts leading to sin and the complicated issue of divorce is the provision for sinful behaviors that are covenant breaking. 
But there's this hardness of heart that comes from perpetual unbelief that brings separation between man and God and woman and God and man and woman from their covenantal union. When Jesus quotes, uh, when, they, when they talk about Moses giving this provision, I want to bring some context for what, what does the hardening of heart look like? Yes, it is the coldness towards someone and the coldness towards God, but there's also this idea of the, when sin enters in and the brokenness ensues, Moses did permit because of sin. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is where, um, where, where he's coming from. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he, impurities, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts in her, it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving his final sermon of the entirety of the law of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, giving instruction of going into the land of promise. This provision was initially given partially as a protection to the woman so that she doesn't lose her dowry to the same man twice. Because in this culture, the woman to be married would have to pay a dowry. Her father would have to pay a dowry to a man, and the man would then take that and then bring protection over this woman. If, she then, if he sends, sends her away, he keeps the dowry. And so if he, quote, unquote, finds some indecency, whether it's true or not, he can then write her a letter of divorce and send her away. She goes and marries someone else, and either that guy writes a letter of divorce or he dies, and then she can't go back to this other guy who may take her again, take her second dowry, and then write her a divorce again. So part of this is protective. Part of it is provisional for covenant-breaking behavior. But ultimately, when God is writing and speaking through Moses, and then as Jesus is speaking, he's speaking of this provision of when sin enters in, when sin comes with its destructive force, when sin comes in and breaks and destroys and steals and kills, when sin happens... Unfortunately, there are provisions. So we must be on guard for a hardness of heart. The opposite of a hardness of heart begins with humility. And it's not just behavior humility. We're like, oh, no, I'm a bad person. Hey, we've all made mistakes, blah, blah, blah. But one thing I've helped people realize is one of the ways you grow in humility is by owning things specifically. I said this. I did this. I made you feel this way. Not, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I made you feel this way. Right? Because in that moment, it isn't whether or not you intended to make them feel that way. The reality is something you said or did, whether intended or not, caused a hurt feeling. Can we love our spouse enough to say, I'm sorry saying this caused you such pain. I'm sorry it hurt you. It's putting the person before yourself. It is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. It's doing for others as you would have them do for you. A hardness of heart would say, I would never do that. Listen, friend, if you are a sinner, if you're born into sin, then none of us are above brokenness. 
And while you think there is no circumstance by which you would ever do such and such things, there may be other things that you are far more inclined to, but who are we to say that under the right circumstances and the right provisions that we wouldn't mess up in the exact same way because of sin? One of the evidences, though, of a hardening of heart is viewing yourself as better or the other person as lesser or you versus them. You versus them, friends, is a hardness of heart. Because God says it's, it's y'all, as we say in Texas. Amen? It's y'all. Not you, not me, y'all. Stephanie scores very high in the Enneagram for loyalty. She's very loyal. She's not blindly loyal. She will see my stuff and say, hey, you need to stop that. Please. She, she's learning. Hey, I think you should stop that. And I remember one time I was pushing her away because she was confronting me on something, and, and she said this to me, and it, it just clicked for me all of a sudden. Because in, in growing up in my home, it, it was a lot of posturing. It felt like my, my father's a litigator, a, a lawyer. Actually, part of my seminary is paid for by other people's divorces. I know the irony. But he was always posturing, always moving, and, and always positioning so that he could protect himself and keep himself from, from taking any fault whatsoever. And so I grew up in an environment where everything was always someone else's issue. And that's been hard for me to overcome, especially marrying someone who grew up under a cop. I'll let that sink in for a minute. I joke and say my wife grew up very black and white. I grew up in a pool of gray. Shallow end was lighter gray. Deeper end was darker gray. And so there was a clash of philosophy. One day I was struggling, and, and we're open about our struggles, and she was encouraging me. She was frustrated with me, and she said, hey, I said, I just feel so alone in this. She said, this isn't your problem. This is our problem. We have a problem. And my wall came down. In that moment, she didn't start giving permission towards sinful attitudes and behaviors, but she began to say, because you're having a problem, I'm with you. Galatians 6 talks about that. If your brother's caught up in sin, you are gentle and humble, should go and gently restore that person, but be careful not to fall into the same sin. She said, because of that, we have a problem. That was a step towards chiseling away the hardness of heart that I'm sure I could be causing. She's, you get what I just said there. I was acting foolish and sinful the way she prevented her heart from becoming hard was stepping towards me and becoming, reminding me of our oneness. See, I, when I counsel couples, it's a lot of, you need to go figure that out. Or don't talk to me until you get your act together. There's not a whole lot of, your sin is destroying you. Your heart is so hard towards God and towards me. There's no confession of my heart is so cold and so hard. I don't feel like I love you. By the time that comes out, you should have been having conversations five years ago. My friend, Dr. John Vanderkay, who's a counselor, who is a member of our church, says that most couples, by the time they're willing to ask for help, are about three to five years later than they should be. Their hearts have been hardened. Another sign that your heart is hardened is you care more about justice than you do mercy. Mercy is not giving what you deserve. 
Now, my wife is high on loyalty, and she's also high on being a reformer, according to the Enneagram assessment, which is a great assessment. That's a rule follower, right and wrong. If you don't understand how humorous that can be, trust me, it is refining for us both. But one of the ways that she has chiseled away, the Lord has used her mightily, chiseled away at my heart, is when she says, I'm, I'm concerned for us. And I don't want you to feel alone in this, but this is causing me this. Or I can go to her and say, hey, I'm noticing these things. And, and the problem is, is we don't have those genuine conversations right until we're already mad. Let's be honest, don't we all become kind of the uninvited prophet when we're angry? Am I the only one? You're kind of chuckling, but don't we kind of say, I mean, all of a sudden we get very clear, like the list comes out, and it's like one of those old shows where the scroll comes and rolls for days, or the paper flops, and it's like, Oh, yeah? I didn't fold the clothes? Well, you blah, 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 right? Doesn't happen in your home? That's a sign of a hard heart. Now, sometimes we're grumblers. We'll grumble, and we'll come back and say, hey, you're right. And I think ways that we're noticing the softening of our heart is the time between when we grumble and we come back and say, hey, I, I messed up. You see, Jesus was bringing, the, the, the Pharisees didn't really care about divorce, by the way. They're just trying to trap Jesus here. They're just trying to catch him. They're trying to say, see, he can't be Messiah because he doesn't fulfill the law. And Jesus goes from their desire to be right to their heart. and says, you don't really care about what God cares about. The reason you would argue against divorce and the reason that God argues against divorce, he's saying to the Pharisees, are completely different. Y'all are constantly looking for loopholes. Because it's all transaction for the Pharisees. What do I do for God to keep God's favor to make things right? What do I do for God? How do I keep things right? Guess what? If it's about you keeping things right with God and performing for God, guess who becomes the God of salvation in that? You. That's not good news. In fact, if we're honest, that's bad news. So caring for your spouse's soul more than your own happiness has got to be a prayerful, willful pursuit. If you can make your spouse happy their entire life, yet they have no affections for God, you have condemned them. That's why when I've counseled couples, I've said, I am not interested in just making you a happy marriage. Because quite honestly, I'll just be exchanging one idol for another. I want to help you have a God-honoring marriage. And whether you're divorced, single, married, widowed, that should be our heart for everyone we know. That their marriage sharpens them. The word in the Bible is sanctify, meaning to help them grow in maturity before God. helping them to understand we are both sinners in need of Jesus. Which as we get to Jesus' teaching, I'll show you kind of the cross-reference in Matthew 19 and as Paul uh, expands on an idea in 1 Corinthians 7. But the second point is this. Divorce is a last resort with very specific limitations. Not a primary option. Divorce is a last resort with very specific limitations and not a primary option. In the church today, 
Divorce is just like a business partnership gone awry. Where there's hardness of heart and people wanting just to walk away because they're not happy, they're not satisfied. If only their spouse would be better. Look, here's the deal. We've got to die to the idol of romantic comedy. Okay? I think many of us have this vision, since we're very little, of what marriage should be or if you grew up in a rough home of what marriage should not be. But we haven't given much time to care about what does a family look like according to Scripture. So there are provisions given in the law for divorce as a protection for one spouse and as a discipline for the soul of another. In Christian marriage, divorce should be much like church discipline where the leaving of that covenant comes for the sake of the other person's soul that they might be saved. In Matthew chapter 19, a parallel passage to this, verse 9. Matthew 19, verse 9. And Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So on the issue of marital infidelity, and the word actually here, porneia, means all sorts of sexual immorality. So not, not simply adultery, but I mean, we, if we want to take adultery as far as we can, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I believe, that looking at another woman with lust in your heart is adultery. So quite honestly, all of us would have grounds to divorce the other spouse, whether it's lust after another person or after the Pottery Barn catalog. Well, it's really the other person in that way. I understand covenantally that was a stretch, so I repent. We'll edit the, edit the video. But longing for another person, lust is not just a sexual thing. Lusting for if my spouse was only like so-and-so. If they only behaved, only longing, 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 unfaithful. You did not marry the person you thought you were going to marry. I had one pastor friend of mine, he did his wedding. He said, congratulations, you're about to kiss a brand new stranger. Like, he said that to their wedding. Like, they were shooting video of this thing. Hey, why don't you kiss this stranger and go live together and figure it out? And he was, it's true in, in a lot of ways. By the time you get married, the marketing is over. You're laughing. I see you. So one circumstance is immorality, sexual immorality. The other one is abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Apostle Paul writes, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman is a, uh, has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? There's more at stake, and, and if we could understand that the, the well-being of the eternity of the other person's soul, if that has no cause for slowing down or brokenness or compassion or fasting and prayer, I don't know what would. I don't know what would. 
the evidence of sin that gets to a point of breaking covenant, covenant-breaking sin, whether it is immorality or it is separation or abandonment, are both cause for deep concern for the other person's soul. I have sat with some couples who have had one spouse deeply and overtly sinning against the other for years and years before they were married, as they were getting married, after they were married, for years. But as this person reflected on the gospel, And as this person reflected on the grace that they had received, they wanted to fight for their marriage. And they have been. And God has been restoring them and using them in the marriages of others. And to be quick to want to praise that one individual, but really it's the God who saves, who takes dead things and makes them alive, that takes broken things and makes them whole that takes old things and makes them new. And the issue of abandonment, a lot of people ask the question, what about abuse? If a person is meant to be for you and they're constantly abusing you, that person is functionally abandoning you. There should at least be some separation for a season to allow community and your church to bring discipline and healing. See, unfortunately, some people take this idea too long, and I've read a 58-page brief summary that I had a friend that's a PhD do research on all the different views of marriage, divorce, remarriage, all those different things. Let me tell you this, there are a lot of views, even within small circles. There are sad and unfortunate moments where it's much like church discipline. And the aim of church discipline, hear me, people hear that word and like, oh, it's a witch hunt. It's not a witch hunt. The purpose of church discipline is restoration, complete restoration to Christ himself. And so when there is a move towards divorce, and let me tell you, I've had to go with someone very close and dear to me through their divorce after years of abandonment and adultery. And it has a huge ripple effect. That's the thing that we don't think about. We want immediate relief and don't think about the effect a lot of times. We might think about the effect, but, but we, we don't slow down enough to really ask the question of the gravity of, of what is the cost. And so people naturally raise a question, well, if I can get rid of him or get rid of her, am I permitted to remarry? Here is my theological question. It depends. And so when people come to me and ask me to officiate their, their marriage, depending on several factors, which I'd love to have a conversation about, those who are divorced under the two provisions of adultery and of, or, or of immorality and of uh, abandonment, it would seem that the Bible would see them as single rather than divorced. It would seem. But there's a lot of complexities that go into that. So I don't want to come in here like a preacher that says, Sweeping statement, sweeping statement about divorce and then not really come in and be pastoral. But the reality is, let's see. And, and let's, let's do more to prevent us from getting to that place. Let's do more to equip 
young people as they are coming to, and wanting to get married to be equipped and counseled and coached on, hey, here's what you're getting into. Just want to give you a heads up. People come meet with me, and I sit down with them the first time for premarital counseling and say, why do you want to get married? And they tell me, oh, you know, romantic comedy things and all that. I'm like, well, that might be like 5% of it. But you understand sickness and in health. Till death do you part. And I don't think either of you want to become a murderer. They slow down. And I spend the next six weeks trying to talk them out of it. To emphasize the gravity of it. We also have to understand the provision God, uh, that, that, that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 as well about remaining single. That part of remaining single is being able to then fully devote oneself to the Lord. So how does your church handle it? Let me tell you very clearly, case by case. Pastorally. Slowly. There's more at stake than just your immediate happiness or comfort. Which leads me to number three. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for the restoration of a broken marriage. That is the only hope. God's faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. God's willingness to take on our sin through his son Jesus and to give us his righteousness. God's illustration of true love through the sacrifice of his son. God's creative and redemptive intent of marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, and marriage takes a lot of work from both spouses. We're now blessed to have couples here who've been married longer than a decade. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. I see some of you. Thank you. But it's, it's work. It takes intentionality. It's not something you just let slide and, and go off. It's, it's something that you've got to fight for and, and fight for each other, not each other. This is a little side caveat for you. But one thing I learned that was really helpful for Steph and I, being thinking very differently, is let's work more about fighting over the issue than each other. And that sounds like a slight change of mind, but what it does is it helps us to look at what is the issue that we are not seeing eye to eye on and how do we seek understanding and how do we love each other enough to try to understand where the other person's coming from and how do we try to compromise when we can or be patient as we fight forward and fall forward with this so number three is the gospel of jesus christ is the only hope for the restoration of a broken marriage and let me tell you every marriage goes through rough spots everyone does feeling isolated feeling lonely feeling misunderstood feeling hurt Everyone does. But here's what we're naturally inclined when that happens, to go within and to hide and pretend like everything is fine. Christ Community Church is a place where it's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay not okay. Christ Community Church is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but because of Jesus, it's not okay to stay not okay. It's very confusing. We'll work on that. Made more sense on paper. Christians have a deeper responsibility when it comes to marriage. Why? It reflects Christ's relationship to the church. It preaches the gospel, and it starts in our home. So I want to briefly give you four truths for experiencing the gospel in the home. And I'm taking up a little more time because we don't have screens for a lot of songs. So unless we rock out like Amazing Grace or Kumbaya, then y'all can flow. I'll land the plane quickly, but, but here we go. 
Four truths for experiencing the gospel in the home. Number one, we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel isn't just for your spouse. The gospel begins with you. Part of the way of confronting sin and, and, and identifying sin as a scalpel and, and the speck in a person's eye is first having eye surgery and removing the log from our own, Matthew 7. So we're continuously preaching the gospel to ourselves. Number two is we love and forgive because we have been so well loved and forgiven. So the, the, the mode of and the reason for forgiveness and love isn't because the other person immediately is acting lovably, but because we have been so well loved by God and forgiven of it all. There's nothing that anyone can do to us that is worse than the sin that caused the death of Jesus. In 1 John, John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, it's 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Number three, we concern ourselves with God's reputation over our current happiness. And it would have been really pithy on the notes up here because it would say, see number two which is we love and forgive because we have been so well loved and forgiven. We concern ourselves with God's reputation over our current happiness. There's so much at stake. And as I've said to you before, we are always preaching a gospel with our lives. The question is, which gospel are we preaching? Oftentimes we approach these situations that are very difficult and we consider our feelings first, then try to figure out how God fits into it. And this is backwards. Let me say that again. We often consider our feelings first, then try to figure out how to fit God fits in it. This is backwards. And so when couples are considering divorce, I ask them to really be honest about their motivation. Is their move for divorce one of condemnation or deep concern and compassion? Is the motive for divorce condemnation or deep concern, and ultimately, God is the judge for that, right? I, I, the elders and I will we'll sit with people, and we'll try to understand and navigate that and want to understand and help however we can with time, with professionals, with resources. But ultimately, what's, what's that motivation? And number four, we all need community and, at times, wise counsel. And so last, the last few weeks, you've heard me talking about how we had several couples go and get certified with something called Prepare Enrich. It's an online assessment that allows for people to be trained to either equip those who are thinking about being married or help disciple those who are currently married and struggling with communications, conflict resolution, finances, sexuality, roles and responsibilities, raising of children, forgiveness, things like that. Any of those issues sound like, I could probably use some coaching in that. And most of us are probably like, nah, I got it. But we've had people trained so that when you come to us, it's not just myself or Pastor Brent trying to help you along, but saying, hey, we, we want to do preventative work here. We want to say, look, all of us need coaching and discipleship in, in how to approach the scriptures and learn to study the scriptures, how to share our faith with people, how to be married to another sinner who's been saved by grace when they act sinfully. How do we communicate in a way that we are clearer and more understand and solve problems together and work together and figure out our budget together without having World War III? Those are the things that we want to come alongside and help walk you through instead of always living in crisis mode because it's five years down the line. And you're done. We've been developing relationships with counselors in the area to help get you resourced and get you help. 
Don't wait till things are like code red and before you reach out and ask for help. You're not alone. I know it feels that way when your marriage is struggling. And so I have one question I want you to take away. If you're married or if you're encouraging someone who's married, take turns, and this is going to be tough for some of us, just listen. Ask the question, shut your mouth, and listen. And just say, okay. We're calling Pastor Brent. See what I did right there? Just hear it and say, because what I'm thinking is, is a lot of us are either playing nice or stuffing down or not trying to communicate or whatever, and we're stuffing it down, and, and Satan is just fanning that flame. So here's the question. What is the primary way that you feel like I'm missing you? You're not a good spiritual leader. Okay, if they, ladies, if you throw that grenade out, I hope it blows up. I hope it works. But I hope you come up with, say, I really would feel led if you would give me some time, some of the kids to study the word, or tell me what God's been teaching you, or because most of us in our church, the stories of no, didn't grow up in a believing home and had that example set. So a lot of us guys are flying blind. So please work with us. What is the primary way that you feel like I'm missing you? And it may be something simple like you don't put your clothes in the hamper. You put them around the hamper. I'm a grenade thrower when it comes to clothes hampers. And I have, I have like 18-point scale of how dirty a clothing article is before I'll actually care to wash it. My house clothes go on the floor over there. My Sunday clothes go in a pile over there. Right? What is the primary way that you feel like I'm missing you? Listen, it may not feel like it at the time, men, women, but that will be such a grace to you and to your spouse to serve them with listening with the intent to understand, not to form your arguments and be right. For those of you, like I said, who've gone through a divorce or considering divorce or whatever, just know we understand it is a difficult situation with a lot of complexities, and we don't want you to walk through it alone. Jesus is pretty clear, though, that those who flippantly get divorced and get remarried are continuing on a pattern of rebellion and committing adultery. That's not an unforgivable sin. And so if you're here and maybe you were divorced under the wrong circumstances or the wrong reasons, just know there's grace. There's grace for you as well. Repentance is changing the way we think about things and changing our direction. Wherever you are, Christ is near. Christ loves you. Christ forgives you if you trust in him.